Hi, I'm John Fallon. And I'm Tobias Tobi. And welcome to the Good Game Podcast. This is a podcast with two teachers talking about how games are changing education for the better. All right, welcome back, Tobias. Here we are. Here we are, finally. Yeah, finally. Sorry for the delay, everybody, between you know the holidays and, yeah. and children and whatnot. You know, we were kind of doomed from the start, but we at least wanted to try. <laughs> yeah. but, but we're here now, at least before the the year is over. Yeah, I th- I think we we've, we've mentioned earlier that this is like making podcasts on the hardest difficulty setting in a way. Making yes. this, but we are yeah. extre- extreme gamers, so nothing yes. but the hardest for us. Yes, exactly. Um, gotta get that achievement badge so um yeah we have a real a bunch of things actually to talk about before we even get to the to the guest uh, uh of the whole season our, our finale guest sam barlow and what but, a finale um, it is yes in fact it's such a finale that we uh sam was so generous with his time um and it just kind of went on so many cool different directions that we thought we would split it into two so i think what we're planning is to drop one that you're listening to right now uh and then probably a few days later drop the second part um where you guys can then can enjoy uh you know the second part of, of us talking about just about everything under the sun with sam barlow yeah, because how often do we get it like a a, 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 re- a real life a real life game developer and our, our podcast and like and not any random game developer either. Yeah, no, so it we, was very yeah. cool. I mean, I basically just cold called him on Twitter um, because you know what 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 did I have to lose? And he was gracious enough to to agree. Um, so it was, it was really cool to be able to talk to him. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, and, and and shout out to to Sam for for being the the sport that he was, and just saying yes without probably knowing full well what he was getting himself into. Um, yeah, the only the, the only thing that I thought maybe he he would be eager to talk because it was right around when he released uh, his last major game, Telling Lies, um, that we got to talk about um, at least a little bit. I think toward the end. Uh, but yeah, he was phenomenally gracious. He's a great guy. Very nice. Um, recommend you give him a follow on on Twitter and check out his games. We'll talk more about his games in a second because he's he's done some pretty incredible stuff. Yeah, but um, we have other stuff to talk about also. Yeah. So first of all, you know, this is uh, as you guys probably figured out. We've mentioned it a lot, but we're doing a seasonal format, and this is the season one finale. We've had you know what is it uh, eight guests now talking about a wide variety of things in, in education. And, and as we said at the very beginning, this is geared toward people who are teachers, educators, parents, developers, anyone who's interested in, in play and games in the learning space. So if you felt that there was something missing, if you felt that there was uh, you know, people you want to hear from, like please let us know because we, we are definitely taking time right now to look back on season one and try to prepare for season two um and give you guys more hopefully more of what you want so let us know what that is if if you've been a fan of the podcast and you've been listening um you know a you know share it with your friends and your family and your colleagues uh share it on social media but um also you know let us know what you think because we're we're that's that's obviously what it's all about yeah and i mean it, and, and you can be also be you feel free to be quite specific in your feedback i mean if you think the episodes are um, too long or too short if you think they're fine in, in length if you think this format works uh, with us two uh, having a talk first and then switching to interview or if you have, if you have other feedback or ideas or if or if you just want to say that uh, you like the podcast and you think it's interesting i mean that 
yeah, we'll take all the kind, all kinds of feedback we can get. And any do you have? I mean, podcasts are, are a very rich space. There's a million different ones out there. So if you have uh, things that you think would make us uh, stand out a bit more or, that, or you would like to see that maybe uh, you, you got from other podcasts, just let us know. Don't don't hold back is basically what we're saying. Yeah. If you think there's and if there's specific topics or specific questions you want us to to invest to delve deeper into, if there's anything kind of specifically, yeah, or, or games in general or about or games specifically for the classroom. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you think you if, if if you're a teacher and you are interested in this stuff, or you're, an, or you're a developer or a researcher, you know, or you know somebody who is, and you think like, oh, hey, that would be an interesting topic. Well, you know, we've talked about that before, or I've seen people talking about it. Chances are, it's interesting to a lot of other people as well. Or if you went to a conference and saw a cool talk, or if you read an interesting paper or article, or yeah, we'll take. Everything we we basically the way we basically try to say is is if you think we might be interested in it, then just throw it our, our way. Exactly, and actually, in the best way to do that would be either to follow us on Twitter. Uh, I'm at goodgameedu. Uh, that's at g o o d g a m e e d u. Goodgameedu. Yes. There you go. So. Um, and then you can follow us on the Facebook page as well. That's where I put a lot of the show notes and stuff. So if you're interested in that, that's where you can find us, um, at facebook.com slash good game pod. Um, or you can just look up the good game podcast on Facebook and there you can find us. So those are both really good ways to, uh, keep in touch with us. If you are, um, you, you want to just follow along, you know, and see when we release a new episode, or if you have a question or if you want to know more or suggestion, any of the stuff, that's the best way to get uh, a hold of us. So um, please join there. Also, if you would like to take some time, you know, uh, give us a rating on app, uh, iTunes podcasts or app, I think it's Apple podcasts now. Um, apparently that makes a big difference in people being able to search for the podcast if they're, uh, if they're doing that. So if you would like to take a few minutes, uh, please give us a, a rating and some feedback. Um, it would be greatly appreciated. Mm. Yes, so we're about to finish uh, our first season now, John. What do you? How do you think? Uh, what, what do you think? How do you think it's been going so far? You know, it's been a lot of fun doing a podcast and just seeing. In some ways, it's it's a lot easier than I thought it was, and in some ways, it's a lot harder. Um, mm. What's the I, what what's what's easier than you thought it was going to be, and what's harder than you thought it was going to be? I think easier was like actually doing the podcast itself, like this part. Mm-hmm. Um, Just talking, think, yeah, talking or... and and interviewing people. Um, I, I think I think as I found as as I interview more people, that actually um, the less structured I tried to make it, the better it was because I, I felt like I had to do all this preparation and all this research and have basically a whole script out. And then when I sat down and actually talked to people, I felt. Um, the, the more I kind of let them, I just kind of guided the conversation, the better it was. So, mm. so, so that was both easier and harder than I thought. Um, I mean, the hardest part, obviously, is, 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 you know, you and I finding time to actually sit down and do all these things. You know, it's the, it's the logistical part. Yeah, it's a very narrow like frame, uh, time frame where you and I actually have like the, the, the peace and calm and time to actually sit down and, and just get this half hour of talking just done for the episode. Yeah, and it would obviously be easier if we were, you know, on similar time zones, but I don't think it would be that much easier. Like you really do have to have, it's almost like a, like 
doing like a raid or something in an MMO, like you have to have like a block of time that you can't be interrupted. And, you know, as adult, as adults, that's always a, a very precious commodity. I mean, I have really have no good excuse. You have kids, you have two kids. So. Yeah, but it's, you, you'd be surprised. I'm sure you know, I didn't have kids. I would find ways to make it difficult. Um, what about you? What, what's been your experience? Uh, I mean, cause you've, you've done podcasting before you, you have your, your Norwegian one, um, which I won't try to pronounce, but yeah, I, I, I have a Norwegian one uh, called Spillpedagogene, which directly translates to, uh, the video game pedagogues or uh, video game educators. Yeah. Yeah. Some, something like that. Um, but we're six, there's six of us. So we have this rule that as long as at least three of us or even two can just sit down and have a chat, then, um, yeah, we make an episode. So it's oh, okay. so it's uh, and we're on the same time zone. So of course it makes it easier. But um, but I I agree with basically everything you said. I mean, I find that working with the Norwegian episode or a podcast, I find the best episodes are the ones where we are like two of just like about three of us, and we basically have no script. Just uh, everyone everybody comes prepared with one thing they want to talk about, and then we just take it from there. We used to have a segment about what we had done like earlier uh the past few weeks but we just started skipping that because uh, we just want to dive directly into the into the interesting stuff we want to talk about yeah i I feel like a lot of podcasts that i listen to they're you're always in search of something like structure that you can repeat every time and when you find something good it's great but you can always like tell when it's like forced and it's not really working um so whatever feels like the most natural i feel that's that's always the best course of action but you know you do have to have some structure so i feel like that's the balance that all podcasts try to have yeah it has to be like organic but but like you said framed or or guided or or whatever but yeah i agree like the, the I, don't, I think both of us like to- like talking you can't be a teacher if you don't like talking no um, yeah. so so it's parts of the podcast basically makes itself in a way in a way yeah uh, but then there's the logistical parts that that's difficult. Um, yeah, it's there is a I, I've been laughing like every time I think about the podcast because I saw this this uh, I think it was a tweet um, like a couple weeks ago and it said something along the lines of, um, you know, every every male after the age of 30 has to choose a subclass and it's either uh beer guy, uh golfer, um uh, there was one more and then it was podcast guy. And I was like, <laughs> Oh, got me. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, there's always there. It, it just seems to be like, it's one of those, uh, things that, that people are trying out in this age, but, um, hopefully, hopefully, hopefully people other than us two are, are enjoying it. That's, that, that's my only hope. Yeah. I hope so. Again, feel free to leave a comment or, or feedback or whatever. If you yeah. have, yeah, because we're we're doing this for for you guys because we we know a lot of people we have a lot of experience and and we want to share those people experience because we think that they're that they're interesting and helpful and uh, maybe even inspiring to a lot of people. So um, if you have a way to direct it to make it more of that, that's that's what we're here for. Yeah, I mean, if without you guys, it would be we would just be like two two thirty thirty something white dudes talking about nerdy stuff to each other. Yeah, and again, we can just go on the internet for that. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, there's that's, plenty of that's us. Pr- pretty easy to find. Um, but, uh, so, but I think the guests are what like sets the, as personally at least sets this podcast apart from my my Norwegian uh, podcast. Um, there's something just cool about 
having people on the show and, and talking to them, giving perspectives that you and I never could have uh, provided. Yeah. I mean, because that's the thing, just like teaching, I mean, even within this relatively small niche of, of game-based learning and gamification and that stuff, but there's just so many different things out there in that field that there's no way that, you know, just two or even three people could, could get to it all. So like I said, that's why we want to bring these people on to share what they're doing, because there's so many cool people doing amazing things with game-based learning that, you know, we have to get it out there somehow. So this is this is the format that we chose. Yeah. I'm looking forward to having more 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 cool people uh, on the show and, uh, yeah. and talking to them. We have no idea what season two will look like, but I can guarantee you we will be bringing more cool people. That's yes. that that will be the the tagline for season two: more <laughs> cool people. Yes. Um, actually, one thing that's cool that's coming up. Uh, to be honest, we won't name names because it's still in the planning stages. But there is another podcast out there that is uh, focused on education, and um, that was a hint if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, the and we we know uh, the guys that run that podcast personally. There are other uh, you know game based learning guys, and. Um, they uh, have a great podcast that's more broadly about education, and we are going to be doing a bit of a crossover, we think, with them, uh, talking, uh, looking at a roundup of some of the best games over the last decade that we think will have uh, uh, some application for the classroom. So there will be a, like an in-between season bonus episode uh, coming out. So if that gets going, uh, you will hear more about it you know, on social media, so keep an eye out for that. Um, and if we get it going, it should be, it should be a lot of fun. So, so keep an eye out for a little bit of a bonus possibly coming up. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but we won't say any more than that. No, just a teaser, just a teaser. Um, but let's get to, let's get to this finale. Let's get to Sam Barlow. Um, yeah, we had a really long, really interesting talk with, with Sam and, uh, we're on first name basis now, obviously. Obviously. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, Sam, Sam was great. Like we said before, he was very gracious with his time. Um, and if you don't know who we're talking about, I'm not that surprised. I would say even among you know, fairly hardcore video game players, you might not know Sam Barlow by name. And then again, video game industry is one where, you know, other than Hideo Kojima and um, you know, Cliff Blazinski, that's and even him, he's he's kind of had some problems uh, with his latest projects, but there's very few people who are on a first name basis, but he is one of them that stands out as the designer. And that's precisely because he has done uh, like he's had a unique effect, I think on video games. And as an English teacher, what I find the most exciting about it and why I want to have him on the podcast is that he is bringing video games, you know, on a quantum leap in narrative quality and, um, and being and, and showing the storytelling uh, possibilities of you know games as an interactive medium, which is is, is definitely why I'm focused on it, and and what you'll hear us talk about quite a bit on, on the interview once you get to it. Um, and where 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 did he get on your radars, um, Tobias? No, yeah, he actually get on, on mostly on your or my radar through you and uh, and Alexander because you both, oh, really? uh, my, yeah, because you you, you and. Um, yeah, both of you have talked much about uh, her story, and both of you, um, uh, really like I've both of you talk so highly about the game. So that's how actually how uh, I discovered both the game and and Sam Barlow. But I have heard about many of the games he's 
he has been, have had its his hand in creating uh, before. I just um, didn't know it was him, basically. Yeah, um, yeah. He he did an early, uh, one, actually one of the later Silent Hill uh, uh, franchises, which it's interesting. It's very it's it's kind of a similar arc to the to the Gone Home crew, where they were together on a DLC for Bioshock, and then they they did like this. DLC that was very narrative focused and you know was kind of a departure from the regular thing and that was exactly what Sam did with Silent Hill where he had this later Silent Hill title it was much different it was more narrative focused and then he goes off and does her story right after that the same way that the Gone Home guys then leave Bioshock and go do Gone Home so it's 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 a interesting arc that there seems to be a generation of developers that kind of jump from a major project where there's a change and then they go distill that in, in an even purer form uh, on their own project. And it's very interesting, at least for me, it was to to hear um, how like to hear something about how that arc takes shape in in like this his coming into coming into like coming into being a video game designer and creator. And and hearing him talk about some of the like uh, inherent like uh, what makes it difficult to make and at least a narrative uh, video game that that's in the in the form of of not only her story but other other titles and the problem of like how you um, enroll the, the the player as an active participant in the narrative yeah while, while, and and dealing with their expectations of freedom. And but also with the limitations that you have of of video games being designed objects, um, you can't account for everything. And I think it was really interesting to hear him talk about uh, his first first um, encounters with with uh, text adventures. I don't know how many text adventures you've played, John. Um, I've played I've played fairly few. I've I've I remember when they were kind of an actual thing. I can remember like very early on in my gaming and then i've played a few like historically if you will like just to experience what it was like um and and i've played obviously ones that were text kind of adjacent like had a lot of dna uh, of text adventures in them but yeah it's not a genre that i am old enough to have played like purely no, I I'm the same because I think I guess you and I are the same age if I remember correctly. Uh, so I've 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 heard about Zork and I played just just snippets of them. But but like like Alex says, he came into them with this great expectations of. For those of you in the audience who don't know what we're talking about, text adventures are basically um, video games without graphics or or yeah. like with with text instead of like, just text. Yeah, uh, and you get this short prompt telling you something. You are in you are outside of forests. You and you can type in what you want to do. Basically, and 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 Sam told, told us about how having these great expectations of like the, the huge freedom that he was like uh, being uh, being given by this, granted by this game, and the the game has a very actually had a very like very few different uh, commands that it recognized. Yeah, a lot of them are like direction based, where there's this invisible grid that you're kind of um, playing out, where you like go north, and then it says like you're in a clearing and to the west is this and to the north is that and there's this on the ground you know pick up sword you know that's that's that yeah that that's what it is like if you've seen um or actually if you've read ready player one you know zork particularly which is like considered the granddaddy of them all um play, plays a pretty major part not so much in the movie for obvious reasons that wouldn't really translate 
and and many and and this of course is what Sam talks about. It's not only like uh, a problem with with text uh, text adventures, but every kind of game. You have these expectations of being able to do stuff within the game, but you're especially games that wants to tell you a story. You have to be told like in a way. There's a way you have to be like be exposed to or participate in the story. If if you can do anything, then it's not really. Um, or is it? A, what do you think? If you had true, like, complete player player freedom, would it still be a narrative game? Um, well, yeah, we talked about this before, where you get you get into that very thin boundary between emergent narrative, where it's like you know you creating your own story based on the things that are happening in like your your little sandbox. Like if anytime you play Minecraft. You're, you're, you're creating a story of whatever experience you're doing versus a constructed narrative that has a give and take between the, you know, the, the player and the designer. And that's, that's that space that Sam Barlow plays in. I, I think he, he really accomplishes, you know, his real ingenious work is, is, is playing in that space where you have control, but maybe not really. <laughs> yeah. And, and the limitations make sense uh anyway because yeah it's it's yeah. a very it's a very interesting magic circle that he draws yeah um, it is it, because it, where it, you 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 immediately feel like you have complete control but you know exactly where you can't go and you don't even yeah. really think of going yeah yeah because so, you know yeah he frames that 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 and typing of text and come with these commands very cleverly cleverly i think yeah, I, I should probably probably say so. The main uh, experience that I have with this is with his first kind of, I guess you would call his first solo game, uh, Her Story, which came out in 2015. Um, and I won't go into everything. If you want to read about how I incorporated it into my practice, uh, you can go on my blog at thealternateclassroom.org. And I have a couple posts on there that are all about how Her Story blew me away and how I adapted it for use in my classroom. But Long story short, you know, it's a it's a game where you are on a virtual computer desktop of an old computer and you're searching through these archived clips of a police interview Um, and you don't know much other than this computer's old. You get the sense pretty quickly that this is, you know, like a cold case that you're for some reason investigating, but the clips have all been fragmented. Um, both in you know their linear uh, order, but also in their length, and you can search them though by the transcript of what is said by the interviewee, a woman um, who you begin to figure out um, is you know there's more than meets the eye you know at, at at first, so you have to kind of figure out you know what's going on um, and. Uh, the story just develops in this really interesting way. And what's fascinating by it is because you can search for the clips that you want to watch, there is no order to the story. Every single person is going to experience it in a different way based on like the curiosity. Like you hear a name, you hear an item, you hear a place and you kind of follow that trail and everyone's rabbit hole is a little bit different. And it's, it's just fascinating that, that it's, it creates, it still creates this cohesive narrative, even with that, expansiveness which is incredibly rare and also what's cool about how this game is designed is that the, the keyboard the physical keyboard that you're typing in this text into not only is like your actual keyboard but it's also like a representation of the virtual keyboard that you are typing in the game 
Oh yeah, my students love that. They the the the, uh, the verisimilitude of like there's like the shiny reflection on the old CRT screen. You can you don't you not only hear the clicking and clacking of your keyboard as you type, but then there's like the old you know dusty keyboard you know on top of that. So there's all these like very subtle elements of the way the game draws you in um, and just it doesn't let go of you. You know, I've been teaching this for, oh gosh, four, four years now. And the, the, my students are, it it's, I think it's the best thing that I teach only because it's those moments where I see students who would barely pick their head up off the desk in a in a regular English class are basically bouncing in their seats because they don't want to go to the bathroom uh, because they don't want to miss a thing um, and you know and are taking pages and pages of notes to keep track of every little scrap of detail it's a close reading game for the English teachers out there it's a close reading game that's what the whole thing is is you are listening to this person's narrative and you are connecting the dots and remembering things she said before comparing it to what she says later cross-referencing the dates because remember it's all out of order so the muscles that you use to play this game are exactly the muscles that you would use reading a poem a novel or anything else so that's as an English teacher that is the brilliance of, of the game for me as a teaching tool yeah because without a close reading close reading you can't progress in the game which is there, there so is clever. no game yeah there, there is no yeah. game without close reading exactly yeah um so this is one i think very cool solution to this uh dilemma of player freedom versus um narrative what do you call it integrity or cohesion i guess yeah cohesion, cohesion? yeah, yeah. Another way would would just be an analog play gameplay activity like uh, Dungeons and Dragons, where you have yes. or other like role playing games, where you have a human that responds uh, to the pl player input. I guess you could call it. Yep. Um, but I want to talk very briefly about a third way, which is um, AI text generation. Yeah, so, tell me about this because you mentioned this a couple times, but I don't know much about it. No. So. Um, I went to this Christmas party with the institute that I do I do my PhD at, and then um, uh, a quite, uh, acquaintance of mine comes up comes up to me and says, "Hey, do you want to play? A do you want to play AI Dungeon?" And I go, "Sure." Oh, I'm, I'm to be a stabby, of course I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he has this 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 weird little app on his phone, which is just like white text on a black background, and it okay. says, asks you to put choose uh, a setting. I choose fantasy, but because of course. Uh, and you can choose to be like a noble, a knight, a peasant, a wizard. So I go wizard because that's the only way correct Obviously, choice. Obviously, yes. Um, and then it gets this, you get this little blurb, like you would do in like an old text adventure. And then it's it, at this point it dawns on me, like wait a minute, AI dungeon is this like in like uh, AI text generated AI text adventure, which it is. And it's it's uh, with all the like uh, horrible failures of, of AI trying to <laughs> interpret human inputs, uh, as you can imagine. But uh, sometimes huh. it, it it's it's actually really clever. You get some you get some really interesting stories in a way. I'll have so to what try you that do, out, yeah. you, you basically there's even a web based uh, version of it now. You uh, and this completely blew up uh, just over the over the past three weeks, uh, three or four weeks, I guess. Uh, so they're serv they, 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 they they use um, uh, a neural network trained on, uh, I think there was mostly on a website where people post their own stories, um, uh, and it's trained. It's trained on these kinds of stories, the AI. Um, so it, tr so um, was one, one, one of my funnier ones. 
uh, you can play this knight to to um, uh, you can play this knight who's about to slay a large black dragon, and then the dragon comes, uh, and then the story that the prompt always starts with you spotting the dragon. So my knight, he uh, slew the dragon and regretted it, and then made like a memorial to where he slayed the dragon, and then. Uh, this the app figured out oh, this this tree you planted when you slew the dragon uh becomes like a safe like a safe haven for other dragons and then he tried to like i just made, made decided that okay this guy would want his new mission is to like stop other knights from killing dragons and <laughs> promote the peaceful harmony of the humans and dragons living together and so on and so on wow that's and, a uh, that's a pretty rich narrative or something that's constructed on the fly it's it, like it breaks sometimes. It has a huge, very like huge uh, issue of, of trouble with with keeping keeping track of who's doing what and who's saying what. So sometimes uh, someone else is saying stuff that obviously your character would would be supposed to be saying. Um, but so you have to like um, tie, uh, like um, fill in quite a few blanks here and there because the app doesn't know what it's saying. All right, so it's it's got gaps where. Your character obviously wouldn't say that, and you have to fill in the blanks. Yeah, and it only remembers uh, like twenty uh, steps backwards. So, like this one time, uh, my castle got invaded by an orc orc chieftain named something something, and then way later, I tried to go find that name, uh, and then this suddenly was like a captain of the guard or something. So it has, uh, it doesn't remember everything. So yeah, so and you you have, but you can also. Um, type in you can also create your own uh prompts that type in your own stuff so uh i went to the subreddit writing prompts i don't yep. know if you I've and, and, just, that, yep. and just copied stuff from there and more than often than not it kind of worked that's fascinating it's really really cool um yeah that r- reminds me of like if you've ever seen that movie uh finding forester it's a uh, Old, uh, I want to say probably around like 2000 um, and it had Sean Connery. Um, I can't remember who played the protagonist. I don't know if he went on to have a huge career after. Anyway, there, it's about it's about like a like a J.D. Salinger type, um, re, you know, re, recluse writer. And this high school student um, in the city, like through a series of events, you know, basically becomes his protege and he gives him he has like writer's block and he doesn't know what to do. So he gives him the first line of like one of his, I can't remember if it's published or unpublished stories. And then he writes this amazing piece just with using that first line. Um, and it eventually becomes a plot point later where he gets caught um, and it becomes like a plagiarism issue. But it's like, it's interesting how it's like you take a piece of something that's already constructed and you use that as like a, a springboard for, you know all kinds of things that happen elsewhere that that, that balance between structure and freedom yeah it's, the, it's you're right that it's definitely the core of interactive fiction like that's like that is definitely the core of like your success or failure is how well you balance that and in what way mm. but it's and it's it's um it, this app does something that we you uh, i once i tried to like uh, destroy the world destroy the world with with my telekinetic powers or something <laughs> and that and that didn't work because it was hadn't been established that i actually had telekinetic powers so I, then i wrote find my magic pills of telekinesis or something and then i found my magic pills and then ate them and got telekinesis exactly <laughs> so, 
Um, yeah, I, I think remember uh, Sam talks about that where he talked. And now after we ha- had this interview, I realized exactly what he was talking about. But he actually, he definitely planned for those people who are trying to break the system or be like silly with the system. And he actually found a way to like co-opt it. Um, I won't give away spoilers, but I, I think I know exactly what moment he's talking about um, to, to, to actually play into it. So, yeah, it's it's really cool to see whether through, you know, a system like AI Dungeon or just through kind of anticipation of what the, the player is going to do. Um, yeah, man, it's it's so great. You should definitely you should definitely go play her story. And if you like her story, you should go play uh, what's kind of like his like, you know, second spiritual sequel which is the same idea but even more called telling lies uh it's it's fascinating stuff like and and he's he's taken games and and put them on you know put them on this track toward you know narrative complexity that i, I think if you're an you know an english teacher or certain like a media studies teacher like you have to pay attention to like you just have to like just dip your toe in it and see what it's like because it's as they say it's the future um and it's a ton of fun more important than anything it's a ton, it's a ton of fun yeah um, and it's like and we talked what we talked about before don't under, underestimate like the power of uh, reading a text that requires something of you in order in order to continue oh yeah my students say in their feedback that they worked that they, they liked her story because it was harder like that that was that is a hook so like you would think like, oh, if I ask my, you know, it's the same reason I don't like assign my students an 800 page novel. It's too much work. It's like, it's, it's not that simple. It's, it's, it, it, it could, you know, it could be the novelty, but it, it is a harder experience and they actually enjoy it because it is harder. Um, yeah. Because it, the, their hard work pays off. Yeah. It pays off. That's exactly right. It pays off because an 800 page novel, like, I'm sorry, most of the things that were written in the 1800s that are like 800 pages they usually just don't pay off that much yeah i'm sorry i don't want to lose my english teacher license but they often Nobody, just don't pay, they just don't pay off the commensurate to the amount of time yeah but, and it's and, and the payoff is not the same for every every person exactly it's definitely and that's not to say that her story has a hundred percent engagement it has very high engagement i don't remember mm. my exact numbers but it's well over my my average engagement probably for any mm-hmm. given text but um and all, he, of course the the engagement uh, effect only has on the teacher yeah i mean you have to i mean that's true for anything if you're bored by what you're teaching no, there's no way that they're not going to be bored too mm. teaching is teaching with games can be fun you heard it here first yeah <laughs> you heard it first. <laughs> breaking news um yes. yeah so anyway we'll we'll let sam do the rest of the talking but um yeah. again uh Join us on social media at goodgameedu on Twitter, uh, facebook.com slash goodgamepod. You know, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, please, if, if you enjoy it. Uh, give us feedback. Uh, tell your friends because, um, you know, season one is, is wrapping up with this and we're, uh, you know, we'll take your feedback and use it on season two. But um, to yeah. be honest, do you have any, any final words before we hand it over to Sam? No, I think we're good. So... Yeah, first first part of uh, our first first half of our uh, interview with Sam Barlow coming up.
Sam Barlow is a UK-based writer and video game director. He has developed for the Silent Hill series, notably the 2009 Shattered Memories installment, which is regarded as a prime example of innovative storytelling in video games. But her story, released in 2015, was Polygon.com's Game of the Year, and the Washington Post called it a beautiful amalgam of the cinema and video game formats. It is a brilliant narrative experience that seemed to perfectly capture the human addiction to voyeuristically dissect the complex lives of others. After painfully torturing his audience for years with the news that he was developing a spiritual successor to her story, he finally released Telling Lies with Annapurna Interactive in August, which I am only about an hour into and I'm very upset my job and family have not allowed me to binge fully down that rabbit hole. But just one of the many glowing reactions you could find is PC Gamer calling it an atmospheric, brilliantly written and acted detective thriller that tells a compelling story in a unique way, which is something that fans of Sam Barlow should be both unsurprised and thrilled to hear. Sam Barlow, welcome to the Good Game Podcast. Thank you for having me. So I guess we could start off uh, talking about what attracted you to video games as a narrative medium. So I can tell from your games and your Twitter feed that you're definitely a, a serious cinephile. So why not film or TV or the written word? So this is, this is an interesting question. And uh, I, I guess it's one I've asked myself a few times uh, in self-reflective mode. Um, I, I guess the the core thing, which is very relevant to this podcast is like, I was of a generation that got our hands on kind of home computers um, and therefore gaming, like at a very early stage in, in our childhood. So I remember, I guess I would have been around, it was like nine or 10 and I went to this small village school we had this teacher and uh, uh he was very eccentric and he was obsessed with dh lawrence and so as as a group of primary school kids like elementary school kids we would go on school trips to visit dh lawrence's birthplace and at no point did as that i was aware of any parents question why uh but the other thing that he did was sign up for every scheme going like if there was a new textbook and they were giving out free textbooks for trial schools or whatever, like he would sign up to all these things. But one of the cool things was we were one of the first schools that had a computer in the school, which I think I'm correct in saying was like my first encounter with a computer. And we had um, the thing you would do on it. There were a couple of games. There was a famous British educational game called Granny's Garden, which was this horrific, if people Google Granny's Garden uh, for its time, horrific horror experience where this big pixely witch would would like eat you or kill you or something uh if you got your math wrong um and there was another game that was like a text game where you were stranded on a desert island and you had to try and escape and it was from memory somewhat open like there wasn't a fixed solution to this thing like there were many ways to get off the island and i still remember that we had like our because there was one computer in the entire school you had like your time a portion so you would get so far on escaping the island and then be like waiting for a whole week to get another stab at escaping the island um but from there we we had like we got a, a home computer at home because again my parents thought it was educational and they bought us the one that they thought was most educational based on the packaging uh and then were horrified that we insisted on playing fruit machine games on it um 
So, you know, as much as things change. Um, so at some point I became super interested in, in narrative and storytelling and, and like you say, film, but like even before consciously thinking about that stuff, I was creating games on these computers, you know, typing things in with basic or, or whatever language they had and would share them amongst friends. So, you know, I had a, a circle of friends and we would write games for each other essentially and, and test them on each other. And I was a big fan of these kind of text-based story-based games, people like Infocom, those kind of early text games. And so I would write text games for my friends and they would be, um, like, especially as I got into my teens, like the TV shows like The Young Ones and uh, there's a show called Bottom, which was the same people that did Young Ones. And it was just like very much kind of toilet humor and kind of ribald, sexy humor about these losers who couldn't get laid. And so, so I was right. Was that like the, Br games. the British, that like the British version of like Larry, Leisure Suit Larry? Because I can remember those. We would, we, uh, Legacy Larry is a good reference, because we were aware, that game, um, my wife is much less uh, of, a, of a gamer than me, but her family at some point had that game on their home computer. Uh, <laughs> and my wife loved it and has a fond memory because that game, uh, before you could access the game, you had to answer a quiz, a trivia quiz to prove that you were old enough to play it. Yeah, it was like a weird cultural question or something. Yeah, and it was written, it was an American game. So there were lots of questions about baseball and things like that. And my wife, who's like a trivia geek as a kid, loved loved this trivia game that she discovered on her dad's computer um, and would, would kind of replay the start of it again and again to enjoy the trivia game, but was less interested in the strange uh, graphic adventure that followed. Um, but yeah, I would write these these text games and they would be like starring one of my friends as the main character. And usually the quest would be uh, to uh, find a girlfriend or something like this. But every the solution to every puzzle or the kind of payoff for all of the quests would be some huge social embarrassment. Uh, and, and, you know, they're very much... Um, I'll say if I if I think back to these things, like the idea that the game had a, a somewhat adversarial relationship to the player, um, it was not just there to entertain; it was almost you know pushing back. Um, it was very much baked in at that point. Um, so I think games was my thing, and that was how I was expressing myself. And then as I got older and and, and read more, and definitely there was a phase I went through where. I got super into movies and I would, and like back then you couldn't just watch any movie you wanted to. You either had to find an obscure video shop or they would be broadcast at 3 a.m. on one of our TV channels. And so I would, you know, carefully record and catalog all of the interesting pieces of cinema and art house stuff that I otherwise wouldn't be able to watch and, and kept like this extremely uh, luckily, I've lost it, but extremely kind of nerdy film diary um, where I'd kind of write my thoughts on the films I've seen and stuff. Um, so, and, and, and I think the general thrust though would be that I never really made a decision to uh, kind of go into this field. Like from where I was, I like my dad was kind of first 
generation of his family that went to university. Uh, but both my parents' families were essentially uh, kind of British working class. And it never occurred to me that I could go out and get the job making these things, right? The, the idea of uh, making movies or making games. Um, like I knew these, I knew someone made these things because otherwise how did they exist? But uh, that was that was not the kind of career path when my parents were encouraging me to go to university. It was very much with the, the outcome of getting a proper job, a good job. Um, and so it was only once I got to university and I was there to study uh, physics initially was what I'd been encouraged to study. And I kind of liked the idea of physics because I'd read some far out books about astrophysics and alternate dimensions and things. And that sounded kind of interesting. And upon arrival at university and, and realizing that actually physics at university, at least initially meant sitting in a laboratory for hours, looking at an oscilloscope, uh, kind of changed my mind. And, and I swapped over to do math, um, which to this day, my dad thinks is hilarious. The idea that I switched from physics to math because I thought that would be more interesting. Um, but, but to me, at least it was, um, but whilst I was at university, uh, that was like the first time I got in touch with the internet, uh, as it was back then. Um, and you know, that 90% of the people who are on the internet were doing it through some academic, uh, server and the internet being slow at the time, if you wanted to download games over the internet, um, either you waited for 48 hours for a, a, a small game to download or, um, text games were very cool because they had a very small file size. And so this was kind of late nineties. I discovered this whole community of people who were, uh, creating new text games. Um, and it was like a really interesting moment because, uh, it was mostly, uh, kind of youngish people who were at other universities um, and there were some prominent people. So um, there were people like uh, Graham Nelson, who I believe it's either Oxford or Cambridge. Uh, and he had created uh, a system to make your own text games that was essentially uh, modeled after the work Infocom had done and, and sort of uh, reverse engineered how the Infocom stuff worked and put this out there for free. And so a bunch of people like me discovered these tools and you had this wonderful kind of mixture of, of, of we all had like a level of nostalgia for the classic Infocom type text games. But at the same time, uh, we all wanted to do cool new things. And, and it was a, a lot of people there that had this great kind of left brain, right brain combination of being technical enough to download these things and, and code these kind of text games, but at the same time being really interested in you know, what are the storytelling things we can do here. And so there were people like uh, Andrew Plotkin, uh, Emily Shaw, Adam Cadre, uh, and, and just tons of other people who were kind of exploring ideas for how to tell a story interactively using this tech in a way that was, was somewhat mindful to the traditions, but also trying lots of, of super interesting new things um, and kind of discovering that scene i was instantly attracted to making my own things in that space um, and the i guess the, the the one thing i did of note there was this game isle which was a text game 
and it came out of particularly out of my kind of feelings about that scene because uh, I had this frustration that on one hand we were trying to do these uh, very progressive things that were pushing the medium forward and so you know you'd have something like uh, Andrew Plock and so far I remember people comparing it to a kind of Ingmar Bergman fantasy it was like this deeply symbolic fantasy story about uh, an unresolved relationship that was both um, like a very hard puzzle game, but also this beautiful, uh, very kind of poetic story. Um, but we, so we had things like that, but there was this weird tradition with the text games where um, when you start playing a new text game and you want to kind of kick in the wheels of the, uh, the engine and, and the implementation, you would kind of type stupid dumb things to see how thorough the implementation was so you know you would there was an expectation if you're playing a text game you might uh you know say uh jump off cliff or you know, punch friend or whatever and, and you would expect the game to come back with some kind of witty response to prove that it understood what you'd said um, and that the implementation had kind of taken account for all these kind of outlying actions but it it encouraged a mindset in the player uh, that was, you know, you were not taking things seriously if you were going to mess around and, and type dumb things to get the joke out of something as deadly serious as, as Andrew Plotkin's relationship drama. And so I made this thing called Isle, where I deliberately tried to create the most mundane situation I could imagine for a video game, which was uh, there is a guy in the pasta aisle of a grocery store and he's looking at some pasta and uh, he's, it, it I think it, it tells you it reminds him of a holiday he had in Rome or something. And then the control is handed over to the player and you can type anything you want. And the kind of spark for the, the game was um, if people type dumb stuff, if people type gratuitously violent stuff, then I will give them the gratuitously violent story they deserve and make them feel bad about it. So there was, that was the spark was kind of this adversarial thing of, yeah, if, if you tell the guy who is looking at some pasta in a grocery store to tear off his clothes or climb the shelves or throw the pasta at the woman uh, who's, who's kind of further down the aisle, then uh, I will give you a slightly sad story about someone who is, who is losing their grip on reality um, and is acting out in this way. But then as I kind of developed it, um, a, a couple of things fell out of that. One was that if I was going to support everything you could do in this moment, uh, the technical challenge was such that I decided to limit your input to a single turn in this game. So you would basically come up with something to do in this scenario, and then the game would finish the story for you and you get like this mini short story, and then it would reset. So you had this kind of slight Groundhog Day thing where you were, it had tons and tons and tons of outcomes and endings um, from this single starting point. And as I kind of developed that, it, I realized there was this layer to it where an action you might take, although it finishes the story, might reveal an aspect of the story which would prompt something else. So this kind of ties in somewhat with, with kind of the gameplay you get in her story where oftentimes you're coming up with things to enter which are not necessarily overtly suggested by the story or which you discover within the text um, and then allow you to kind of uncover further things. So, you know, in, in Isle, uh, it, it might mention the name of a woman um, in one ending. And so then you're like, huh, I wonder if she exists elsewhere in this story. Um, and so you might then call out to that character or remember that character. 
and you'll get a different story. Um, and there were, you know, then became very messy. There were, it was like a kind of multiverse thing. So there were different stories that coexisted in this single moment in time. And it was a, a fun little thing, um, which just pulled this digression back. So at that point, uh, I was like super invested in all this interactive narrative stuff. And, but I was also kind of involved in theater and uh, painting and, and lots of other artsy things at university. But again, still in my head thinking these were hobbies and fun diversions. Um, but by the time I finished university, I kind of realized I didn't want to be necessarily a professional mathematician um, or become an actuary. And I ended up in the, I ended up in a job in the tech world over in America, where I was working for a, a company doing business intelligence things, and database things, um, mostly because they, they kind of, uh, they came around our university careers fairs and, and they paid for us to have nice meals and were very pleasant. And uh, the guy that was running the company, he was very much a kind of Elon Musk prototype. He was this uh, very bright, young man who was also somewhat eccentric and, and had come into a, an outrageous amount of wealth through this tech company he had started. And he, the press would love to talk to him because he would talk for hours about how he wanted to put chips inside his head to track all these things. And he was building a replica French chateau in the Virginia countryside and was this kind of interesting character. And I remember at the time thinking like, well, I'm not really sure what I want to do now, but these people are offering me a job and it seems like it will at least be interesting because I get to go over to America and, uh, and there's this very eccentric CEO. Um, we'll see how that goes. And, uh, the way that went is like a year in, uh, there were some issues about how they had filed their accounting and the SEC got very cross and there was, uh, a need to, fix that and so they kind of shut down my subsidiary and so i kind of then found myself looking for work and at some point ended up back in england and, and had a friend who worked for a video games company he was a programmer and he knew that i did all this art stuff so he was like well you could be a video game artist uh, so i spent a weekend putting together a portfolio of, of like 2d art and i downloaded some cracked copies of like all the 3d packages and sort of did some 3D modeling to show that um, and ended up then working as a games artist and very quickly was moved over to be a designer, mostly because I wouldn't stop talking in meetings. Um, and then very quickly from that point was made into a lead designer because I still wouldn't stop talking. And they were like, well, I guess we should just remake that as job and <laughs> it stops being a problem. Um, and continue to, to make games. And, and these were like, you know, these were, uh, movie time games and, and kind of weird little games that, uh, you know, we were told to go make, uh, but at some point, uh, through luck and, uh, a doggedness on the part of myself and my lead artist, we ended up working on the silent hill series mm -hmm. and. We got one shot at there was a game Silent Hill Origins, which had been started by another studio, but was in trouble, was nowhere near finished. It was totally somewhat uh, wide of the mark. And we became involved to help them out technically. But at some point, uh, we continued to kind of petition 
the bosses to let us make this game. We're like, look, we, we love Silent Hill and we love these games and we love storytelling. Let us do it. Um, and they relented because of the pressures at some point to actually finish this thing uh, became an, an issue for the company. And so they handed it over to my team and we were told, uh, they've already spent half the money and time. You're not going to get any more. You just need to get this thing finished so that no one gets <laughs> sued. And myself and some of the other team looked at it and we kind of came back and said, well, we feel that to not embarrass this legendary franchise, we need to redo all the monster designs and level designs and throw out all of this stuff and redo the story from scratch. And we were told that was okay, except they had already paid for the CGI cutscene at the beginning of the game and at the end of the game. So we couldn't change those. And they'd already put out marketing assets with the main character who was a, um, as, as pitched to me, he was a middle-class trucker who just happens to be caught in Silent Hill and turns out to have been instrumental in all the key events in Silent Hill. We just never knew that until this point. Um, we could, so we had to stick with that. Uh, but everything else became this huge, huge effort where I rewrote the story in like a week. And then they said, well, we haven't got enough time to storyboard it all in time for the, the cutscenes to actually be made. So I was like, okay, I'll storyboard it. So I'd like go home at night and storyboard everything. And then we wanted to, I said, redo all the monsters. Again, there wasn't enough time to have the concept artists come in and do all that. So I would go home at night and draw all the monster designs. And so it was like a very intense uh, labor of love to some extent by me and some of the team members. Um, but we finished that game and it ended up being a mediocre Silent Hill game, which was the height of our ambition for that. <laughs> we kind of set ourselves these parameters that was like, this can't, this can't be a huge embarrassment. I, I think our goal was our very worst level has to be no worse than the worst level in all the other Silent Hill games. And it would be swell if our best level was up there with some of the better levels in the other games. So we were like, you know, let's, you know, we're going for something. We know exactly what we're making. We're not going to try and innovate. Um, and we can't fix everything about the story that's already been established, but we'll do our best to deliver on the atmosphere and, and, and these things. So we did that. And uh, because of the fact that we had saved that, we got an amount of leeway from Konami and then pitching them new stuff, um, which then became a, a slightly back and forth process. But at some point we ended up uh, pitching them the idea that became Silent Hill Shattered Memories, which was probably the first game I was kind of essentially directing and writing where I was like, oh, this is an idea I've had and, and is, you know, and taken from nothing and then kind of fully executed on. Um, and it was an attempt to, given that we had played it safe with, Shattered, with Silent Hill Origins, was like, here is these are all the things I want to tweak about horror games. And here are some cool ideas I have about storytelling and the role of the player and all these things. Um, and we got to go make that game. Um, and it was really in making that game that I kind of stopped and realized like, oh, making these interesting interactive experiences is something I've been working at all my life. 
and and you there is a way of telling the story where it's like oh we always knew sam was going to end up making these things or i always knew i wanted to make these things and you know this was my trajectory to doing that but it was only really in in fully executing that game where i was like oh i this is the thing that i really want to do and these are the things that interest me so i think there was always like i said it you know the rather than writing fun stories to share with my friends, I was writing these little interactive stories to share with friends. Um, and even though I would later start writing kind of static fiction and, and bits and pieces, like that idea of, of coming at a story from a video game perspective or an interactive perspective was definitely baked in there. So, um, and you know, since I've had opportunities to go and do things that are purely static, um, and it always felt like, depending on what point you asked me that question, uh, it it would more or less feel like taking the easy option. It's like <laughs> making these weird interactive things that have no precedent uh, is super compelling, but it's also difficult. And so, you know, the idea of taking out a couple of years to just go make a, you know, quote unquote, normal movie or something would be like, oh, suddenly all the... <laughs> all the difficulties that come with uh, playing in a, a format that doesn't 100% exist would, would kind of go away. Um, but it, for those very reasons, it always feels like that would be the easier choice to make um, and that uh, there's more interesting work to be done um, in kind of continuing to explore this space. Yeah, it's interesting that, that your kind of journey got there because I think for a lot of the teachers in our audience, that, that sounds like probably kind of like a familiar path as far as it's a lot of happy accidents. A lot of it is just you have the the origin of playing games and it being a medium that you were just immersed in growing up. And then you are in this kind of workspace for, for Tobias and I was a classroom for many of our, our listeners. It's a classroom and you're, you just kind of have this kind of pile of experiences. You're like, yeah, I can make these fit together. Like, of course I can. So do you feel that... Um, like, do you, do you feel that like you were always like meant to do this or was it just kind of like you found yourself in that moment? You're like, okay, uh, I, I know how to make weird stories. I know how to, uh, the, the usual stuff works and I'll just kind of barge down those walls. Or did you feel like you always had that dream that you were like, I'm going to make her story <laughs> and it's only a matter of time before I get there. Uh, I, I think it, yeah, it was less conscious but maybe there was a tiny part of me thinking that like i can think back to experiences that were clearly super influential to me um, just like fun things like i remember um there was the infocom game deadline was like one of the first full-on detective video games there was, there was this text game and the blurb on the back of the box had had some kind of marketing blurb about you being a detective and the decisions you make will influence how the crime, like the, the solving of the crime or something. And I misread it to mean that like whatever interesting stuff I pumped into the game, it would kind of steer itself around and that this crime would almost become some kind of subjective or version of my, my kind of take on the crime. I remember being so excited by the possibilities of that and then realizing, oh no, there is, there is a fixed solution and a fixed route to that solution. Um, so I was always like drawn to that kind of aspect of interactive storytelling that was slightly looser or more magical. Like my favorite 
kind of fairy tale growing up was the the magic paintbrush. I just remember the idea of this kid just drawing something and it coming alive seemed um, like incredibly cool to me. And so, like if I if I try and boil down the stuff that I like about the games I've made or other people's games that I play, there's there's always something that feels slightly magical that you know through the reactivity and of, of digital stuff you can have something you can do something and then the consequences of that can be surprising and interesting and that feels uh like super interesting to me. and that's clearly been something that i've been interested in whatever um i was kind of doing at the time so um yeah but it would definitely be um if I'm being honest, it would feel like something that I've accidentally continued to to move towards rather than the being a um I think mainly just out of pragmatism. But yeah, we I think at any given point in my kind of official career in video games, I was always focused on the thing I was making and it just so happened that through a series of, of lucky things and, and you know, within each game we were pushing as hard as we could. So um you know I had uh, in between Silent Hill Origins and Shattered Memories, we got to work on a uh, fantasy game that was being made by a German company, uh, and and we were asked to come in and solve some problems on it, and you know got stuck in there and tried to do some interesting things with the story before that one was cancelled. But it was always making the thing I was currently working on the most interesting version, and and through doing that repeatedly, ending up in a place where I was like, oh no, actually writing and directing these interesting narrative video games that are character driven that are accessible is the thing um yeah i think teachers would really kind of recognize that where we kind of we kind of live in chaos and we're like you know what this is this is how this is working and i'm gonna i'm gonna make the best of it uh, but it's interesting that you brought up detective stories uh, when you're talking about deadline because that, that was something that really jumped out to me so on the on the blog for her story you say Detective stories are all about peeling back the everyday surface to reveal the darker, primal underbelly to human life, the sub subtext to our happy, law-abiding existence. This is the same job that authors sign up for, uh, you know. And as an English teacher, like I think that's that's so dead on because I'm I'm usually battling some type of like anti-reading like inertia. And, and, and I think you can get any student into a story or into a theme if you make it an explicit mystery. So how did you, how did you work that? Uh, and how did that get you to creating a game like Her Story where you wanted to make the, 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 the player a, a, a detective of sorts? So I think like that. So I've always been into uh, thrillers and crime fiction. And like as a teenager, I was obsessed with, the American show Homicide Life on the Street. And I think actually at the same time in the UK, there was a show called Cracker. And both those shows, uh, the high points of those shows were the confrontations between some of the more interesting criminals and the detectives in the interrogation room. And mm -hmm. these are very intense uh, kind of gladiatorial battles between the detectives um, and these people and, and what had gone on in their lives. Um, but I, in, in, and I'd been pushing for a while uh, to make something in that space for a, a bigger publisher. Like, hey guys, this thing is huge everywhere else. Um, why can't we try 
and make a good video game set in these worlds and they weren't interested. So when I made her story, I, I made the deliberate decision. If I'm going to go and make an independent video game, I'm going to try and do all the things I wanted to do that, that no one would give me permission. And, but really when I was thinking about the detective stories and, and like say, like why are detective stories so popular? Why they're so interesting. Um, and, you know, I realized that they were interesting to me on several levels. Like one as a storyteller, you instant, and especially a storyteller who's interested in interesting structural setups, your, your kind of base detective story is already a degree more complicated than most other stories, because you usually have two time frames. There'll be the, the world before the murder and you're in the, the archetypal Agatha Christie, you turn up and there is a murder. Uh, and then you have the kind of the time frame of the detective who shows up and is investigating the crime. And so you instantly have these, these kind of two time frames, and then you have lots of characters who you're meeting, who all of whom, even if they're guilty or not guilty, have, some hidden secret and so every mm -hmm. conversation with them is full with subtext and layers of irony um so i was like well that's that's why i'm interested in these stories because because they are complicated and they have these layers and that's interesting when you throw interactivity in um but i guess the the thing that was most interesting to me and, and to your point of, of trying to get people interested in things was the one of the ideas that i would wrestle with especially when working with publishers is there would be um an assumption about what people at a kind of primal level enjoy so especially in video games uh it, the assumption was that we are naturally violent creatures and so we love conflict and violence and so you know if you put fighting in a video game people will just naturally be drawn to it uh and then mm -hmm. you don't even need to add context and everything that i had read and looked into and, and in the context, especially of storytelling, uh, spoke to the fact that we don't necessarily have an innate desire for conflict and violence, but we do have at a very primal level, uh, if we are opposed, if we are uh, challenged by something, we have a natural desire to overcome that, to best that challenge, which is mm -hmm. where all of those video gamey feelings of, of violence and conflict come from um and what was interesting to me about the mystery setup is that yeah if you propose a mystery unanswered questions there is naturally a curiosity that arises people naturally want to figure out the solution um and really if you look at her story like the one of the leaps of her story was to look at previous attempts to tell detective stories um, where there is always there's always a fight between wanting people to have a smooth video game experience but wanting them to feel like they're actually wrestling with a mystery and oftentimes this will result in railroading or excessive kind of hand holding um, and and really the thing one of the more radical choices i made in her story was to be extremely opaque up front and like my gut was if if i present something that's very opaque and resists the player to some extent like that will only encourage them more 
uh, and especially when you throw interactivity into the mix, like if, if I feel like it is my job or, or I'm in the position where I should be doing something, um, that that really will create this interesting tug of war. Um, so, you know, the idea with her story of dropping you into a mostly empty computer desktop and a blank database screen um, to most human minds is is like a provocation and it's a call to action. It's like, you're like, okay, this, this thing is it's so resistant to giving me anything uh, that I will now push back and dig into it. And then as soon as you start picking up strands of the mystery and things to grab onto, then it, it, it kind of snowballs. Yeah. There, cause the, the, the voyeuristic element I think is, is, is interesting because the her story does such a good job of within moments with, you know, the, how, how much the, the database seems to be actually in front of you with like this screen reflection and the, and the, the ambient noise of like the sirens outside um, and the, the quick clack of the keyboard on top of your own quick clack of the keyboard. It, it kind of makes you like, oh, I'm not supposed to be here, but I, I have access to this. Um, and I think at least there's kind of like this perverse incentive uh, that makes at least my students like they within moments are like, I have to know everything about this. Hmm. And like, I'm and kind of, a lot I'm of like, the I'm, game... go for Sorry, it. Yep. Yeah. A lot of the game came out of, so I was like, I knew going into it, I want to make this game that's in the police procedural crime space. And uh, I knew that I wanted to do things slightly differently and that this was not going to be a, a police game where you drive cars around and chase suspects down alleyways. Um, so I went very deep into like a research phase um, and I read lots of the handbooks on how one goes about interrogating a suspect. Uh, I read like some fascinating academic works about the psychology of uh the police interrogation um and i was looking at a lot of getting any transcripts i could get of real life interrogations um, and i discovered this this kind of treasure trove of footage online where you know in certain cases the interrogation footage is released uh during the discovery phase or into the public um and there were a couple of cases. There was one uh, that was huge in America, but I wasn't that aware of back in the UK back then, which was the Jodie Arias case. And there are hours of tape online of her being interrogated by the detective um, and just became very acutely aware of like the draw of the of the, the authenticity and there is this voyeuristic vicarious thing, but just like our natural desire to kind of learn about other people and empathize with other people, you know, when you have someone sat in an interrogation room, it's almost like a therapy session. Um, you know, they are talking about something that possibly never talked about out loud before and it becomes intensely personal. Um, and listening into that, I could tell was was interesting and addictive in a slightly unseemly way um, and which you know, became readily apparent when things then like serial and stuff um, kind of launched and really the development of her story was there was a point where I realized like oh watching this video footage is super compelling and maybe that's what the content of this video game looks like but there was definitely um, it was like an arc to my experience which i tried to mirror in the game where kind of early days 
all of my sympathy was with the detective. I was like, oh, Andre Brown in Homicide Life on the Street is the guy I want to be. This is a game about getting to be him. Uh, this is very much about being a detective, solving the crime. And through watching all these Jodie Arias tapes, like by the end of it, my POV had shifted almost entirely to her side of the room. I was like, actually, I feel so much for her and what she's going through. And I understand that the, the detective is manipulating her. Um, and, and even just the fact this is being recorded and then shared is, is problematic. Um, and so that's when I made a few of the decisions in her story, like, um, we shifted the camera position. We did like an early test where the camera was more elevated, like it is in, in, in when they record these things in, in real police rooms. Uh, and, but we shifted it down to her eye line so that it was easier to empathize with her and feel like you were sat opposite her rather than kind of viewing her. From oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It's very conversational that way. Yeah. yeah and, and, and things like not hearing what the detective was saying. So essentially, the whole of her story is it becomes her telling her story through her own words as much as she's maybe not always telling the truth. Um, and it was really, and like the, the kind of idealized arc of people playing it possibly playing something like her story is, is to come in with the question of like the big picture of like, Oh, what happened? How, I'm going to solve this crime. I'm going to play it detective. But by the end of it, like the more interesting questions you're asking are very much digging into this character's backstory and sympathizing with her to some extent. Um, and it becomes much more of a, a, a kind of character study. All right, so that was the first half of our interview with Sam Barlow. Then the second half will release in just a few days. I hope you enjoyed this first half and I hope you enjoy the second half also. Until then, stay tuned for more. Take care.